Healthcare and senior care is fraught with problems and challenges, but we're also seeing some amazing new clinical treatments and resources. This show will help illuminate and uncover the good, bad, and the ugly in order to equip patients, families, and other healthcare providers. Welcome to Senior Care Confidential. So we're living in an age now where in like the last couple hundred years, we've almost more than, I should say more than doubled our life expectancy. So like in the 1820s, average life expectancy was 38. In the 1920s, it was 54. And now it's roughly 80. So we have this weird uh, confluence of events where we've got uh, older bodies with lots of wear and tear. And the kind of the medical community is used to seeing people much, much younger. And so we have all these chronic illnesses now. And one of the common things that we see with, with seniors now is a term called sarcopenia, which is just a, a fancy word for age-related muscle loss. It starts in our 30s and advances um, as our life extends. Um, and so today's guest, we have Andrew Sokolowski from Southwest Florida. He is the CEO of Live Well. Um, and works a ton with senior living communities and seniors in their own homes, um, helping to reverse, and in a lot of cases, significantly reverse um, some of this age-related muscle loss. So, Andrew, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So glad you're here. So, um, how? What's your what's your background? When did you start getting into senior living and senior care in relate with regard to uh, muscle strength and functional decline? Let's start at that. So definitely not the path that I expected to go down. Um, in, you know, growing up, I was always involved in the fitness industry and things like that. Ended up following that and getting a degree in exercise physiology from Bowling Green in Northwest Ohio. Um, after that, I, I had the plan of moving to Florida. And the idea was to work with athletes who are going to be pursuing division one athletics. I was like, oh, this will be great. I'm going to be in, you know, some of the best strength and conditioning areas um, that United States has to offer. And when I moved to Florida, I set foot inside of a, a nursing home for my first time. And within two weeks, I was completely changed. Mm -hmm. um, I was just overwhelmed with the need for some continued exercise with those patients. Um, and there wasn't many people doing it. So I was just kind of utilized my skills and expertise to go about that. So stated differently, you saw a much bigger impact potentially for this client population than with division one athletes. Although division oh, absolutely. one athletes have been awesome to work with, but yes, I'm, I'm, I'm in this world for the same, for the very same reason. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Joe, you are Me as well. Me too. And you know what, as a nurse, I see declines, you know, somebody may even have a short stay in the hospital. Let's say they've got a UTI or, you know, just pain that needs to be controlled. They're they're out three days later, and you can see a significant decline. And it's so unfortunate, and they 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 are so discouraged yeah. by that. Andrew, there was a there was a recent study I came across. It's probably been six months ago now, and you know we've always talked about. Um, there's always been this notion of, you know, the move it or lose it principle. You know, if, if we're not applying some sort of a stimulus to the body, the body does decline over time, and so. Um, I, you know, I use that in, in classes that I teach and, 
Um, but a lot of times the studies are kind of old or dated and they're not really applicable. There's, there's nothing really stratified for like the, the older population. And so I found this one about six months ago and it's fascinating and you'll love this. So they, they took a group of six, two groups of 65 and older folks. One group they went through, they took them through like a full body resistance training. Here's the key. Right? It wasn't cardiovascular training. This was resistance training, you know, geared for muscle mass. And the average participant in five months, which is just shocking to me that it went this fast, in five months, they gained roughly two and a half pounds of muscle at 65 plus, right? Like wow. no juice, none of that stuff. It was just, you know, good, clean nutrition and resistance training. The other group of 65 plus, they said, stay in a bed for 10 days. In 10 days, they lost nearly the equivalent of what it took the other group five months to gain. And then we wonder why when they come out of hospitals, they come out so deconditioned. And so one of my things when we're working with um, patients, even before yeah. they become patients of ours, I have family members who will call and go, Brian, mom or dad's in a sniff or they're in a rehab or they're in the hospital. Like what things should we pay attention to, you know, kind of in prep before you come out and work them when they get home. And that's one of the things we start talking about. Like, What's nutrition look like in the hospital? <laughs> and then are we getting some therapy to at least get them out of bed? Because that, that deconditioning happens in a flash. Are you seeing the same thing? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, back to that study, I'd be interesting to understand how much protein that they were taking in. in I can order tell to you, two and a half one, 1. 1.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. Okay. So, okay. so uh, interesting you brought that up. So we just had this on my last podcast with um, our That's pharmacist. Nice. Yeah. And so she, she and I were talking about some nutrition as well. The recommended daily allowance for protein, do you know what it is? I shouldn't quiz you on these I things. I, I'll just tell you, it's, it's, it's 0.8 grams per kilogram that's of body weight, right? Which is just like to, for those that don't know, that's like baseline, I'm going to live on a couch level, right? It's not stratified for gender. It's not stratified for age. It's not stratified for disability. None of that stuff. It's just, you know, everyone's the same. And so it's 0.8, which is useless. And so, you know, you'll look, everyone, everyone just looks at the back of the boxes, boxes and says, oh, good. I got 40% of my mm -hmm. protein in for today. Well, not really. <laughs> and so um, they did some studies on this too. What they found was and in order to reverse sarcopenia, so again, age-related muscle loss, that number has to be 1.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. So a clear, like 50% more than what the RDA says. Interestingly enough, too, they did some other studies on hospitals. Do you know what their level of protein intake mm -hmm. was on the on the dietary side? What? 0. 0.7. Oh, 0. 0.7. We weren't even to the point of the 0. 0.8, which is the RDA, which is loose, which was uh, in, insufficient anyway. So yes, to answer your question, on that particular study, they, they made sure they had 1.2 grams of uh, protein per kilogram of body weight in addition to resistance training. Because both Good. are clearly I mean, needed. It, yeah. it's, ne it's needed. Um, yeah. And then, you know, one of the things that we always talk about with our, our members is, like you mentioned, the, the 10 days to lose that amount, um, you know, muscle atrophy occurring within, a, you know, 48 hours, um, every day in the hospital, potentially a week of recovery that you're going to have to go through. So when they hear the, the facts behind gaining muscle versus losing muscle, they're like, mm, is this something that I really want to do? And then once they hear the fact that, yeah, you can lose muscle that fast, they're like, okay, yep. this is something that needs to be done. Yep. And one thing, my question, like I know in rehab, and I've seen this, I've had clients that I've worked with, the physical therapy that they get is only Monday through Friday, and then it's 30 minutes or less. And so how is that strengthening those muscles? It, it's just such a short amount of time 
when the rest, the other 23 and a half hours, they're pretty much in bed. So are they really rehabbing, you know? How can you rehab with 30 Do you want to take that one, Andrew? I have some ideas on that too. Yes, I'd love to know. It's definitely a good question that you pose. Um, And it's hard to say because everyone's going to be different. I think that, you know, what we're seeing a lot of nowadays is we're getting called into skilled rehabs more so than I ever expected before. Really? Because the patients want to recover faster and because they can't get the therapy that they feel as a patient is necessary. And the and the, the Smiths know it. They know. It. They say, you know, and what? are we they welcoming we to your visits? I mean, are they open Absolutely. to it? Wow, no, that's great. That's incredible. Yep. Yeah. So one of the things that that we see, because I used to do a little bit of some post acute work in, in facilities like that. Um, and to your point, like thirty minutes might not seem like a lot. But honestly, you can get Angie. You can vouch for this too. You can get a pretty good workout in in thirty minutes. Like there's, you can be sweating, um, you know, quite a bit from from the energy expenditure in thirty minutes. But to your point, if you're spending the other twenty three and a half days in the bed, that's where you're you're starting to lose whatever you, you're trying to pick up. Like you're you're going backwards. Mm-hmm. And so at least if we're up in chairs and those kind of things, or walking around a little bit in addition to, then we can start to see the, the improvements there. Mm-hmm. All dependent on the patient too, you know. If the yeah. patient's compliant, yeah, those thirty minutes they can go quick and it can be effective. But they're not if they're not compliant, then we're gonna have some issues. Yeah. So you've got some interesting studies because I I know because um, you and I are, are are LinkedIn friends. We've talked for we've known each other for a few years, um, and so I know you're starting to work with a company called Vald. Um, so tell me what you're what you guys are into. Where, one, where did Vald start? Like what what was what has been their primary focus? And then what are they doing with you guys now? What are you guys seeing? And then let's go through some case studies um, that you can show us as well. Okay, yeah. So Vald is a company out of Australia. Uh, they actually started a business with an emphasis on European soccer clubs and rugby uh, programs. So what they started with was actually this machine to test um, hamstring strength because they were seeing a lot of injuries with regard to hamstring strength. Their business has snowballed and basically what we work with now are two pieces of equipment, again, designed for the professional athlete, but we decided to take it for a spin and it's been absolutely life-changing for our clientele. So we use a piece of equipment called Force Dex. On the Force Dex, we do two simple tests It's a a quiet stand balance. So we can imagine the patient simply standing on these two force plates and it's going to measure how much their feet move underneath them. Like the sway. With with the sway, exactly. So we'll do so with eyes open and eyes closed and then start to compare those two. And then we do a squat assessment as well. So with that squat assessment, we're looking at different things like force output, power output, eccentric activity, concentric activity, and then the asymmetry that occurs as well. Okay, so for the audience members who aren't exercise physiologists, what is a concentric activity and what is considered an eccentric activity? And why are those two things important for the senior population? So when we think of an eccentric, so let's let's break down a squat, right? So a squat is we're, we're lowering ourselves basically down to a chair. So that lowering phase is going to be the eccentric. And we can think of the eccentric kind of as this force development, um, the true strength behind a movement. Yeah, so the another- concentric... For the functional, the functional side of things, though, like lowering yourself into a chair, this is where we sort of avoid the the plopping that we see, right? <laughs> the drop. You, yeah. you, you, you the see drop. the chair, we turn it, we just go. Oh. This is this is being <laughs> able to control that stuff, and then the concentric exactly. is the opposite, right? That's being able to actually rise out of a chair. So both are right. necessary. And- 
And doing so, you know, one of the things that Vald has actually opened our eyes to is not just the force output, but the power output as well. So how quickly can you do that? Um, oh. Just because of some of the research behind some of the type 2 muscle fibers, fast switch, things like that. Okay. Tell me more on that. There's So power has started to become one of the most important metrics as it relates to overall longevity, uh, mortality risk, and then basically activities of daily living. Okay. They're, put simply, um, the more power output you have, so the quicker you can rise from a chair, the better off you're going to be as it relates to all things aging. Wow. Okay, so two questions on this. One, one observation and a, and a question. So what is the difference between force and power? Is it just the speed component? Is that all it is? Yes. Okay, yep. got it. All right, it's interesting. So have you ever heard of the five-time sit-to-stand test? Yes. Okay, so the concept is- I haven't is, heard of that. Have you heard of that one? I have not heard of oh, that. Oh, okay, so it's real basic, ready? You time somebody and they go five times from sit-to-stand. <laughs> Without, without pushing with their hands. And there's normative values. Like if you're 60 to 70, you should be able to do it in this time frame, plus or minus a couple of seconds or whatever. So I think if, if memory serves me correctly, Andrew, you might know better. I think for like the 80 to 80 year old crowd, it's somewhere around like 12 to 14 seconds, I, I think, if I remember. And the idea behind that is if I can go from sitting down to standing up multiple times quickly in that period of time without using my hands, then they have found that my longevity and my risk for falls is far less. So they're seeing the same thing. We're just, we just now can measure it in a different way, much more accurately with the vault thing is what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. You're spot that's on. So cool. Wow. That's very neat. So what are you seeing in terms of some case studies with the vault? Now, let me go back. Are, is vault starting to work with you? Like are you guys collecting normative data on senior living folks and seniors? Like so we're, we're beginning. We're beginning. You're starting to. Right? Okay. So, um, so Vald right now has normative data on, I believe, age 18 to 55. Okay. Um, our population that we work with is typically anyone over the age of 65. So yep. what we're doing is we're collaborating in order to collect as much information as we can regarding that 65 plus population. So we're partnering kind of with senior living facilities, whether that be independent or assisted living to gather more information so that Vault can take it back to, you know, their headquarters and start to create those normative values. So then we can start to understand, okay, at what point does someone need to utilize a walker? What point does someone basically lose, you know, various activities of daily living? So that's kind of the goal behind it. Okay. And is the force, it's not force, it's power. Is that compared to like somebody's weight? Because if I was 200 pounds, I had to develop a lot more force or power to stand than if I was 110. So, does so you, can look, you can look at both absolute and relative. Okay. So the studies, okay. the studies that we typically look at are based on absolute. Yeah. Um, but again, we're comparing it back to that individual based on a rate at which they yeah. might it's, decline. It's all relative to the client anyway at that point. Because if you're doing it individually, it's like that. I'm just thinking like if you go across right. the population, how do I know, you know when do I need the assisted device or whatever? That's fascinating. Right. Yeah, and the other, you know, the the other cool thing. So we utilize another piece of technology. It's called their Dynamo. It's a handheld dynamometer, mm -hmm. um, and we collect relative force output at each individual joint. So we utilize a research study that showed, okay, with within a skilled nursing facility, how much knee extension force should you be able to produce? How much knee flexion, abduction, hip extension, different things like that. So we can start to pinpoint where we really need to start working. Okay, so I'm going to ask you. You had a recent LinkedIn post um, on a client. I don't know if it was. A, it, was a, it had been a client of y'all's because you guys you guys measured him, 
and mm-hmm. he had um, his values for his force output across the board. For if, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was all of his joints, with the exception of his grip strength, were normal. And he yes. had some moderate weakness in his grip strength. And he had was it a fall or something that he ended up passing away from, which was a shock because if you look at the rest of him, so there's something about like that grip strength. There, there's something that we're missing that explains why that happened. And I think even you were like, "Wow, I would have never expected something as small as like the the grip strength might have had it." And it maybe is it's causation correlation. Maybe there's nothing there, or maybe you know there's a reason why um, Vault is finding out that the the grip strength there's there's some correlation to something there. Yeah, I mean, there definitely is. Um, there is a correlation between grip strength and all-cause mortality. Right. I wanted to simply understand, you know, is there anything related more towards knee flexion, knee extension, different things uh, like that? Okay. How do um, they relate uh, the two, all-cause mortality to, to grip strength? How is that related? Uh, so there's a threshold. I don't know what it is off the top of my head. Um, but once you're beyond that or below that threshold, you're at a higher risk for prevalence of hospitalization, falls, and okay. death. So, um, and it's based on, you know, you, you collect a force output and then relate it back to kilograms. Um, and that one's actually absolute. That one's not going to be relative to the individual. Interesting. So it makes me wonder, because I always try to think of like other variables that are behind this stuff. So, you know, we couldn't tell Billy Bob to go do like grip strength stuff, right? Because it's probably not related to that. It's probably related to their normal activities of daily living. And in, in incorporating those activities of daily living, I have to have enough grip strength to do these things. It's probably more related to that. Would you say that's correct or am I wrong? Or can no, I just do some right. forearm yeah. exercises and... <laughs> yeah, my, my forearm exercises on a constant basis aren't going to help me live longer. Yes, okay. You know, ju- just Got doing it. that, I guess you should say. Yeah. So, so I want to ask you a question. So how often... So you have a client at an assisted living that's that's hired you all to help. How do you go out daily, three times a week? I mean, what what is the schedule with these clients, the, the average? So every, yeah, so everything's individualized. Um, more so than anything, I would say we're out twice a week. And we, we simply follow that with the American College of Sports Medicine. You know, we view ourselves as the strength training modality that American College of Sports Medicine recommends. So we're out twice a week, and then what we also recommend is they go do another activity two other days during the week, whether that be walking, golf, tennis, uh, you name it. So if they are getting Medicare services at that time for physical therapy, are are you communicating with the physical therapist on what you're doing, or is it usually they're just using your services? Both. We, okay. uh, we definitely supplement alongside both Medicare provided home health within the skilled nursing facilities and then outpatient as well. So when we do have this, uh, you know, a particular instance like that, we are communicating. But then I would say that once those services discharge, we're kind of the continuation that can continue on without any limitations with regard to insurance. That's okay. awesome. Yeah, wow. Okay, and you know, we talk about kind of the good, bad, and ugly in healthcare. And, and as an advocate, I see the ugly a lot. (laughs) And so what do you do with your services if you see that that Medicare certified agency providing the physical therapy is not doing what they're supposed to be doing? How do you handle that if it contraindicates what you're doing, if you're doing two different things? Have you had a situation like that? We haven't necessarily had a situation where we're contraindicated with regard to how we're trying to improve the patient outcome, um, because I think our goals are aligned there. The tricky part that we've run into is when individuals state that 
we aren't allowed to be in when there are various Medicare provided services already on hand. I think that some of the service providers don't necessarily want another set of eyes and ears or they don't want their progress being disrupted or something like that. Um, but we've had instances in which, you know, a Medicare provided home health says to the family, you can't have anyone else in the home right now because this, <laughs> yeah. that, and the other. Goodness yeah. gracious. This is a it's complete misunderstanding of the regs. Yeah. 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 Cause if anything, you guys are an adjunct. Okay. So yes. on the therapy side, not therapy, but on, on the training side, I know, cause <clears> I know you fairly well. Um, you have a, you all have a different philosophy on, probably the dosing of exercise, but pr more specifically with the, for this question, it's also on the type of exercises that you use. What do you find the most successful now that you can actually track the progress of your clients um, in terms of their force output? Force, right? It's force? Power. It's power. Power. power the power, power. output. Um, I'm learning. Um, so when you can, now that you can track on the power output, are there certain exercises that you guys bias more towards because they're so, shown to be more impactful? So funny enough, this kind of goes against like what you would expect. Um, we focus on functional training, right? So movements that are going to occur in everyday life. And yeah. I found the greatest amount of knowledge gain with regard to functional training at a CrossFit level one seminar. So you think CrossFit, so you think high intensity. <laughs> wow. <laughs> right, right. So you think, you, you think complete opposite of what a senior would be doing. Um, but they break down the functional movements. So a, a squat pattern. So think about, uh, you know, rising from a chair yep. or an air squat or something like that. So we focus on squat patterns a lot. We focus on hinge patterns a lot. So understanding that your knees have a hinge, but then also your hips have a hinge. Um, and without any hinge strength, more so, you know, uh, hip flexion and extension, you're going to be in a pretty bad shape. Yes. So focusing on that itself, picking up things from the floor. Yes. Um, and then pull, pull patterns as well. You know, bringing people into a shoulder retraction, a shoulder retracted position so that they understand, okay, this is what true good posture feels like. Interesting. Okay. Wow. That's great. I just think about, I know I have a brother and sister-in-law that are just, they go to Orange Theory seven days a week and I'm terrified because I feel like I would be such a failure <laughs> compared to all the athletes in the room. So somebody, say there's a senior who's not been super athletic, but you know what you can do to challenge them and get them stronger. How do you approach that? So it's it's a delicate approach, right? But I think that one thing we've noticed is once we kind of get over that first hurdle of accomplishing something that they turn their mind off to, the sky's the limit. Um, once they accomplish that first goal, they're more than happy to kind of get out of their comfort zone, push themselves to a new level. Um, and that's when we really start to see the progression. So it's, it's a delicate approach at first, um, but having them buy in and knowing that they can trust us, we're not going to put them into a situation where they're going to be harmed in any way. It, it really does help. That's great. So I know you've got a, you've got a couple slides that I wanted to um, to let you kind of go through just to show some of the. So I think you've got one that was like a positive outcome and one that was like post uh, significant surgery. So you can kind of see the difference on that. Can you walk us through those? Absolutely. Yeah. So this first one here, um, the key here is to understand which one's the initial assessment and which one is the secondary assessment. So with this example, the initial assessment is going to be the dark line. So that line that's underneath, it's shaded in a little bit darker. Okay. So that's the initial assessment. And then the trend line that you see is based on a Copenhagen study. So basically, you know, after the age of 65, you start to see various regression, whether it be 
anywhere from three to 5% based on your age. Uh, so we take the initial assessment and we put it into this program where it, it gives us that trend line, right? And then after about four to six months, we reassess this particular client and start to understand what sort of a positive benefit they have. So then the line above, um, shaded a little bit lighter, shows the new trend line. So his, so this particular, I, I know this individual, um, he's a 82-year-old gentleman. Um, and this reassessment, which is the line above, as I mentioned, shows that basically he had 14 years of positive benefit. So where am I getting that from? How, do, how does that happen? So what we do is we utilize the initial assessment and we pick any age and we start to understand, okay, if his initial assessment showed at the age of 80 that he was supposed to be at 350 watts of power, um, you know, at what age now would that occur based on reassessment? Gotcha. So what this chart shows is that, that that number wouldn't occur for another 14 years based on reassessment. It's, yeah, it's, it's kind of like the chronological age versus it's, it's not fitness. It's, it's fitness age, right? It's, there's a chronological, chronological, uh, a chronological age. Mm -hmm. And then there's like this health and health and well, health and wellness related age. Uh, and right. it's kind of what you're doing, but from a, more from a functional standpoint, that's awesome. That's, that's incredible. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, it's one of those things where we were telling, you know, our members, Oh, you improved by 28%. And I said, uh, okay, great. That's, that's awesome. But you know, right. From what? Yeah. How can, yeah. Exactly. Um, and then as soon as we put this on here, it was like, oh, wow, this is, this is game changing. That's, that's significant. Awesome. I love that. I love that. All right. Now show us the next one. That's got the, the transplant. So this one is, so this one's the opposite, right? So again, paying attention to the different colors. So the lighter line here, so the, the line above and shaded lighter is the initial assessment. Okay. So this gentleman was actually quite powerful. He of course needed a, he needed a lung transplant. So we started with him before that lung transplant. We understood what his regression line was gonna be. And he went off to get a lung transplant. It was actually kind of a crazy story. Um, but then long story short, he was basically in the hospital for about 50 days. Yep. Upon, wow. upon his return, we reassessed him. And so our goal was to understand, okay, how much did this lung transplant age him? Um, and you can see here, at the, the chart's a little blurry on my end, but I believe that it starts at the age of 69. Based on that reassessment value, he would not have reached that until the age of, I think, 107, if we compare that back to the initial assessment. Wow. So we can say that, you know, did this lung transplant age him 40 years? At least initially, um, yeah. Wow. From a functional right. status, yeah, it set him back 40 years functionally, is what it looks right. like, yeah. Right. Wow. So then, you know, it, it starts to beg the question, okay, what does that mean for his future then? It, can you turn this around? Is he to a point of no return? It's, you know, we don't know. It's something yeah. new that we're looking at, but it's What's, something we're going to follow. Notwithstanding like severe case, I shouldn't say severe case, extreme cases like this, like, you know, we don't see lung transplants all the time. So not, right. not including cases like this guys, um, but just your normal, you know, aging, debility stuff that you see in uh, with your senior clients. How long does it take you to get them to kind of where they're starting to backtrack years? Like they're gaining functional years back. 
which we, you and I would equate that with quality of life, lot, mm-hmm. you know, maintaining independence far longer, right. reduction of falls, all that kind of stuff, right? It's, it's, it's well-being and quality of life. When you start to see there, now we're getting like my chronological, my, yeah, my chronological age might be 85, but my, mm-hmm. you know, my functional level might be I don't know, 78. When you start to see right. that go backwards. So there's definitely a couple of variables at play. You know, it's the intensity that the individual is working throughout the session. How often are they having an exercise session? What's their nutritional status? How much are they sleeping? You know, all of those factors play in. Yeah. Um, But we typically try and assess at about the four month mark. Um, And typically when we do reassess at four months, you know, whether it be two, three times a year, we're going to start to see a positive benefit for that individual. Got it. Okay. Awesome. I know you. And there are, there are there are cases when we, when we don't see um, you know that much of a positive benefit where we're kind of right along that regression line. And my view on that is okay. If we're along the regression line, sure, not the best thing for us to kind of prove that exercise is beneficial. But imagine if you weren't doing anything, then what would that regression line look like for yeah. you? Yeah. So can we talk about diet? You know, I know you were talking a little bit about protein. How how important is protein as we're gaining power? I mean, we're breaking down muscle with exercise. If if you're not taking in an adequate amount of protein, you're basically going to be utilizing, you know, your muscle that you already have to try and repair, right? So it's kind of this broken system if you don't have any sort of protein intake. And it's one of those things that seniors missed so often. And, and so what do you do with clients in those communities where the the food offered does not meet the, the protein <laughs> needs of that individual for optimal improvement? That was said so nicely. <laughs> um, A year supply of protein shakes, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, right. We, we recommend various protein shakes. Um, the state of Florida is a little bit tricky with regard to nutritional advice. Um, which is actually really nice. They're very stringent on who can and who can't provide any sort of advice. So we'll give basic recommendations like, hey, maybe try this protein shake. But then we actually have um, kind of a registered dietitian that we can point them towards. Right. More often than not, individuals aren't interested in you know piling that on top of what we're doing, especially when you talk about an individual who's set in their ways eating for the last 80 years. It's really hard to change. Wait, and you know, I've encouraged families bring up a blender and keep it in the patient's room and do a protein shake. You know, if, if they don't like anything that's offered, you know, mm-hmm. just have something in their form. And most of the rooms have a little fridge too. Yeah. So yeah. Um, just offering those, encouraging that protein is so important. Yep. Absolutely. Awesome. Andrew, man, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm, I'm fascinated to see and follow you and see what other kind of things you guys are developing through Vault. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to see as you guys are creating more and more of the, the kind of the normative values that you guys can pull through those force plates and see what you guys can develop from there. Anything else that um, audience members should know about you, how to get in touch with you, those kind of things? Uh, yeah, I mean, if, if anyone has a loved one in the Southwest Florida area, we are happy to work with them, you know, whether they've gone through the therapy process or they're currently going through the therapy process or they want to be proactive about things. Um, we always offer a complimentary assessment. We can point towards, you know, if they don't necessarily need the one-on-one that we provide, we can at least say, you know, I think you should work in this area. You should focus on this, different things like that. Okay. And ha- what's the best way to reach you? Um, best way to reach me, I would... 
say if you head over to our website, which the URL is a bit of a mouthful. Um, sorry, we're we're going to put it on the screen for you. Yeah. <laughs> www.livewellhealthmanagement.com. And Andrew, I have a question. For those patients that are clients that cannot afford your services, I know you are concierge private pay and it's a wonderful service. What are three things that you would recommend to a Medicare patient that doesn't have the funds but could improve that power individually? Could improve the power. Okay, so sit to stands on a daily basis. Um, I would do probably two sets to strength. So moving at a bit of a slower tempo, controlling yourself down, as Brian mentioned earlier, um, and then coming up at a normal speed. Then focus on two sets uh, trying to control for power. So you're still controlling yourself on the way down, but now you're exploding out of the seat. I would do basically the same thing for a glute bridge or a, a bridge on your back. And then last but not least, I would learn how to hinge at the hip properly. So if you want to look up a video like a Romanian deadlift or something like that, and truly understanding how to engage your glutes with that movement, those are probably the three most important that I would focus on. That's great. Thank you for that. Awesome. Thanks, Absolutely. man. Absolutely. Great to see you again. Thanks for spending the time with us. Yeah, thank you so much. It was awesome. Great, great to information. See you guys. Yeah, it was great. Appreciate the time. Absolutely. Absolutely.